God, we come before you um, aware, of, aware of our sins, uh, aware of our, our, our brokenness, aware of our, aware of our needs, aware of, uh, aware of just the fact that we, we are not God, we are not you. God, we're, we're aware that we are creatures and that you are creator. Uh, we're aware that you are holy and that we are not. And every part of our lives te- testifies uh, to, to that reality. And we pray because of, because of those truths that, that we would come to your word. God, would you help us come to your word humble, no, knowing that, that we sit under it, uh, we don't sit above it, um, that you are uh, God over all, and, and we come to, to hear from you and to learn from you and to worship you and to be helped by you and, and changed by you. So God, would you make the posture of our hearts and our, and our minds as we turn to your word, would you, would you make us humble and contrite? Would you reveal yourself through your word by your spirit, that we would leave seeing uh, both your, your character in your holiness, your character in your justice, but also your character in your mercy, in your grace, and in your kindness, and will we see Christ? He's the one that we need to behold. He's the one that we need to look to. Father, he's the one that you have sent. Jesus, you have come willingly for us. And so we pray for your spirit, God, to direct our minds and our hearts to behold Jesus. We pray for every church across the city, Lord, that is seeking to be faithful to your word and to your gospel, Lord, that that you would bless them today as well. That Jesus would be lifted up, not just here, but across the city, that people would look to him, worship him, be in awe of him, be changed by him, and then be sent out to declare him and demonstrate him and represent him to this city that you love. So would you do that for your namesake and for your glory? In your son's name we pray. Amen. We are in Exodus, and we are going to continue with this epic story of what God is doing to free his people out of bondage to Pharaoh, the world power, the the ruler of Egypt. God is working in power to free his people out of slavery and bondage to Pharaoh and Egypt and to set them free that they may know him, that they may be near him, that they may worship him, and that they may be a light to the nations. That's what God is doing. And so we're stepping into the middle of the story. And what God has been doing up until this point is he's been showing these plagues and these signs, um, these these plagues and signs, which are both at one time an act of judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt for their brutal ways against his people and for their worshiping of false gods. But on the other hand, at the very same time, they're an act of mercy. It's an act of God going public and displaying himself sign after sign so that people can begin to see and begin to know no, okay, these are false gods. This is the true God. Let me turn to him. And so God has been working out these plagues to make himself known, to free his people. And now we come to the final plague. We come to the plague of all plagues. We come to the devastating final plague where God is going to send judgment upon Egypt. And as God sends judgment upon Egypt, we see two realities that are central to the character of God, that are central to understanding the story of Christianity, two realities that are central to understanding Jesus Christ. And really, we're going to see these two realities under this kind of idea, this this story of the Lamb. That as we look at this text, we're going to see a Lamb being prominent 
in the narrative, prominent in this final plague, prominent really in our understanding of who God is. And as we look at this, we're going to see that God is a just judge, but also a gracious savior. That these two realities are absolutely fundamental to understanding who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so let's look at this last plague. Let's look at Exodus 12. We'll read 12 through 32. This is, I want to, before we jump into it, this is often, um, if people are preaching through Exodus, this will often be a passage that people will skip over uh, because we see the judgment of God in a very clear way, which, let's be honest, sometimes makes us feel uncomfortable. But here again is the benefit of preaching through books of the Bible is that it's not some, a team of us saying, hey, this is, what we'll, this is what we'll teach. This will be easy. Everybody will like this. But rather, we, we come and go through the whole book so that we can say, hey, what has God said in totality, and how can we understand that? Okay, and so we're going to see the story of the Lamb here in Exodus 12. So 12, 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. God is saying how important this final plague is going to be. He's going to institute something for them to do to remember this final plague, this display of both justice and mercy. Verse 3, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbors shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of, Is of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt." Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing unleavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. 
Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord shall pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when, you say, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he has passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So what is the story of God's people? It's the story of the Lamb. The story of God who is a just judge and a gracious Savior. Now, story is important because we're narrative creatures. I was recently reading uh, something in the, in the New York Times, um, one of those articles that you don't agree with 90%, but 5% of it's good. You ever read one of those? You're like, okay, this, does, this is, doesn't make any sense, but this paragraph is fantastic. And in this article, this, this writer is talking uh, about this, this telos crisis. He's talking about this idea that we have a crisis of identity and a crisis of purpose because we struggle to understand the story in which our lives are placed in. And in this article, this writer actually is talking, <laughs> was surprised, actually talks about Exodus as one of the stories that lives need to be placed under, understanding this idea of we're set free from something and given to another positive thing, that we're liberated from something negative and set towards something positive. And his point is this idea that we are creatures shaped by story, and so to understand our purpose, we need to know the story that we are placed in. And to understand the story of Christianity, you need to understand this passage, this idea, this story of the Lamb. And what God is doing here in setting his people free and liberating them from Egypt is he is declaring and showing himself as a just judge and as a gracious Savior. One of the fundamental things that has been happening up until this point in Exodus is that Pharaoh has been asking and saying, who is the Lord, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 2, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? Pharaoh is a good modern kind of citizen that would fit in perfectly for our times. He's someone who says, hey, Hebrew slaves, you guys have got your gods. We've got our gods. I'm deified as a god. I'm exalted as a god. Keep your gods as long as you don't impose what your God says on me. So he says, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? Not tell me about your God, but really, why should I listen to your little old God? You are a slave people. And every single plague is God displaying himself to Pharaoh and to Egypt to say, I am actually the true God and your gods are false gods. With each plague, he dismantles a false god of Egypt in order to show Egypt and Pharaoh who he is so that they may turn from their idols to see him. And each plague increases with intensity until we get to this final plague, the striking down of the firstborn, what we see celebrated in Jewish tradition and celebrated in Christian tradition. We see it as the Passover. And God is showing that he is a just judge and a gracious savior. Now, each of the plagues that God has shown at this time, he's dismantling an idol so much so that as we look through the text, we see Egyptians beginning to fear the Lord. 
Egyptians are seeing their idols struck down and they're beginning to understand, okay, these gods are not gods at all, but this God of the Hebrew slaves looks to be the real deal. We see this in, in 920 where we read of those in Pharaoh's house who feared the Lord, they actually take preparation so that they're not impacted by the plague of hail and fire and storm and thunder. We see Egyptians beginning to turn to the Lord because God's display of plagues, which show both his justice and his mercy, are beginning to be taken to heart by some of the people of Egypt. We find out later in chapter 12, we get to verse 38 in in that type of area, we see that a mixed multitude is actually going to leave Egypt. That means it's not just Hebrews that are going to leave and be set free, but it's going to be Egyptians among them because they have seen God display himself through the plagues. They have seen that their idols are false, that God is true, and so they follow. So God is showing himself that he is God through all the plagues, that he is a just God and a gracious Savior. And he's showing that most clearly through this final plague, this judgment upon Egypt through the firstborn. He's showing who he is. Now, when we hear that and we think about that, it sounds a little bit unreasonable to us. It sounds a little bit strange to us. Why is God going to reveal himself and show himself by judging and bringing death and putting, uh, putting justice upon evildoers? Why is he going to show himself in that way? Wouldn't it be better for God to show himself by a display of his mercy? Wouldn't it be better for God to show himself by a display of healing? Wouldn't it be better for God to, to show himself by, by, by a display of a phenomenon or of some sort? Why is God seeking to display himself in an act of justice? Isn't that, isn't that a question that we have? Why? Why through a display of his justice? Well, he gives a display of his just judgment for multiple reasons, but for one of the reasons is he's actually speaking to a fundamental need in the human heart. By revealing himself through a display of his justice, he is showing that he is the answer to a fundamental human need, a need of atonement. The other reason he shows himself through an act of justice is because every act of justice displayed by God is tethered to an act of grace. See, we want to separate God's justice from his mercy. In our minds, we think that if we lower the standard of God's justice, we heighten the beauty or we heighten the amount of his mercy. But actually, they work together. Is that if we minimize God's justice, we also minimize his mercy. If we minimize the need, we minimize the provision that meets that need. And so when God shows himself in this act of justice, God is actually at the same time showing himself in an act of mercy. And here's how we see this. The Passover, God is displaying himself as a just judge, but also as a gracious savior. Think about what happens in the Passover. Look at verses one through five. There's a command, there's instructions that God gives to Moses. He says, you're gonna take a lamb, For every household, in verse 4, if you don't have enough money for this, you kind of pull this together, work it out, beg, borrow, steal, get your lamb, five, lamb without blemish, take it, and you're going to, seven, you're going to kill it, you're going to put the blood around the doorposts, and you're going to eat its flesh, you're going to celebrate it as this Passover meal. And so God is giving instructions to his people. Then in 21, Moses repeats the instructions to Israel. And then if we go down to verse 12 and 13, God gives 
this instruction and this declaration, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike the firstborn in the land, man and beast. On the gods of Egypt, I will execute justice. I am the Lord. 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the, the Passover. This is what's happening. But, but notice what God says to his people. Notice what God's people have to do in preparation for justice and judgment coming upon Egypt. Notice what they have to do. They have to get a lamb and they have to make atonement. Do you understand what this is telling us? God says in 23, he's going to send the destroyer, the angel of the Lord. Do you understand what this is telling us? This is, this is telling us that there is really no distinction between the Hebrew people and the people of Egypt. God is telling us that he is such a just judge that the only way his people escape the judgment that's coming upon Egypt is if there is a sacrifice in their place. What God is showing us is that if it were really to come down to it, the people uh, of Israel, the Hebrew people who've been oppressed by Egypt, if it was really going to come down to it, they ought to be judged in the exact same way. That's what God is showing. God is showing that he is so just that really Israel ought to receive the same judgment but there's going to be a display of grace for them. You could think about it this way, that even though Israel is oppressed, Egypt is the oppressor, even though Israel is worshiping the one true God and and Egypt, for the most part, is worshiping idols, in and of themselves, if Israel were to not have this atonement, they would receive the same just judgment. And so God is displaying himself as someone who does not play favorites, you're good, you're bad, but someone who gives justice justly, but also displays mercy graciously. See, the distinction between Israel and Egypt is not a distinction between good and bad, righteous and unrighteous, holy and unholy. It's the difference between a display of mercy. It's a difference between a display of grace, which is why after Israel hears all of this, what is their response at the end of this passage? What do they do? They bow and they worship. That's all they can do. They understand if it wasn't for God making a provision through this lamb, that judgment ought to fall on them. So they bow and they worship, which is something that we hear earlier in in Exodus in chapter 4 when God comes to them and says, I'm going to set you free. Well, when they hear that, what do they do? They bow and they worship. Because what other response is there to hearing that judgment is coming and it ought to come on you, but by a display of grace, it's going to pass you over? What other response is there but to bow and to worship? Imagine, this, imagine the, the news or imagine the retelling of what would happen after, the, after this plague comes upon Egypt. Imagine what the nations are going to say. They're going to hear of the Hebrew God who, who saves his people, who, who judges justly Egypt. Now, now remember, if, if you're he's sitting here, oh, why is this coming upon Egypt? Well, well think about what's happened in chapter 1 and 2 of Exodus. Think, think about the judgment that God is now rendering upon Egypt for what Egypt has done, the, the systematic killing we see in chapter 1 and 2, the systematic killing of Hebrew babies. That Pharaoh issues a, a government edict so that every male born to, to Israel will be slaughtered does this generationally. And God has been patient and given plague after plague, chance to repent, chance to turn. People of Egypt are starting to see, and now God is going to give the just judgment upon them. 
what they've done is going to be met with justice. But think about what the nations are going to say as they hear this. They're going to hear, wow, so, so did you hear what happened with Israel and with, with Egypt? And Israel is beginning to go free, and, and justice came upon Egypt, and their firstborns were, died. The angel of the Lord visited them. What, what happened? What happened to the Hebrew people? How did they escape? How, how did this not happen upon them? What, by what power did this, did this go down? And, this, and the person's responding, well, they put the blood of a lamb on their door. Imagine a person's response, a lamb. The angel of the Lord passed over people who deserve judgment because of a lamb? You got, I mean, have you guys seen a lamb? Little Bo Peep, have you seen these things? So, so you're telling me in a showdown between God's justice, the angel of the Lord, the thing that makes uh, judgment not come upon you when you deserve it is a lamb. Little, old, fuzzy, hairy lamb slaughtered. That's what makes judgment pass over. And so the nations are going to be shocked. Nations are going to be surprised. The nations are going to wonder, how is this? But the story of the Lamb reveals that God is a just judge and a gracious Savior. This institution of Passover is the cosmic display of God's grace and mercy. Think of what God does. He institutes a whole system in a way for his people to be atoned for. He institutes a manner in a way by which people who deserve to be judged will not be judged. A lamb leads to mercy. Now, now how is this? this is, how, how is this possible? It's really through this concept of, of substitution. This idea of substitution, which is so difficult for us to understand. I won't put this on all of you, but if, if you've grown up in a Western context, this is prob- probably, we'll just say qualified, probably difficult for you to understand because we're so used to thinking of ourselves in, a, in an individual type of way, which in some ways is a great thing, but in some ways we miss, uh, we, we miss kind of the big picture. And so this idea of the firstborn, and, and these things don't make sense to us because we're so individualistic. But the way things would be understood in, in this culture and in many cultures even today, that the firstborn would be representative of the whole. So there's a way in which Pharaoh, in his evil, actually represents all of Egypt. In the same way that Jesus and what he does for us comes to benefit many and represent many, it's the same thing in the way for Pharaoh. It's the same thing for the firstborn. It's the the type of cultural thing of communal identity where in some families or in some cultures, if the uh, the older sister does something crazy or the younger brother does something crazy, it, it uh, it brings shame on the whole family. Put it positive, it brings honor on the whole family. But to us, we often don't think that way. It's just, hey, that's just my crazy cousin. <laughs> don't worry about him. But in this type of culture and in this type of setting and many today, there's a representative communal identity. This is why in the story of Abraham in Genesis, when Abraham is, is God says, Abraham, go and offer your son to me. When, when he does that, Abraham is not thinking, why, why is this happening? He's thinking, this is the firstborn. This is judgment coming upon my whole family, representative. This, this makes sense. Now, what he's wondering, what, what he's doubting, what he's conflicted about is probably the promise. God, you promised blessing through me to the nations. How is that going to happen if my firstborn is judged? Well, God provides a provision of escape. He provides a ram. He provides atonement. The same thing that he is doing here. He is providing a means of grace, even to those who are deserving of meeting with justice. He provides a means of grace. Now, when, when we see this, we might feel that this is primitive at best. This is barbaric at worst. 
A lot of times we speak about God's grace, but we don't understand that God is just at the same time. Romans 3 describes that God is both just and the justifier of the ungodly. That he renders perfect judgment, but finds a way to declare people who are not godly, godly. Well, how is this possible? Well, he does it through a display of both justice and grace at the same time in one act, and that's what we see in the Passover lamb. That the lamb is slaughtered and the blood is applied to the doors, it's applied to the people, they, they eat, they partake of it. Notice that in, in 22, it says, none of you will go out of your house until morning. Well, you don't want to see, you don't want an encounter with God's justice because you and none of yourself can't withstand his judgment. So, so stay under the covering of atonement so that this judgment that you really do deserve will actually pass you over. God is a just judge and a gracious savior. Now, some of us, when we think about God's judgment, God's justice, we think, ah, well, well why, why, why for this? Why not for that? Why? We, we, we start to wonder and think, well, what's the standard, or is there a standard, or, or what does this mean? And, and that makes sense, because in our, in our air, in our cultural understanding, it's really difficult for us to say, that's not right, that's not what God says, or this is what God says, or this is just, or this is unjust. We have a hard time doing that, because it doesn't quite make sense to us in a lot of ways. I think this is represented by uh, uh, a magazine cover that came out, I think, last week, Time, Time Magazine. You guys heard of that one? Time? Okay, so uh, I think, in, I don't remember the year, it was maybe two decades ago in April, the first uh, Time Magazine cover was, uh, Is God Dead? And the Time Magazine cover um, this April was, Is Truth Dead? And it was a really interesting, I don't think they did it on purpose, and no conspiracy theories, we don't need that. But I just thought it was an interesting coincidence, and they used the same color and the same font, all this stuff. I just thought it was an interesting, um, an interesting connection, and it, it helps us understand why sometimes when we think about the atonement that God makes, the grace that he displays, and that it comes through uh, justice being put on something or someone in order that grace may go to many, it's hard for us to grasp that because in a lot of ways, we have a hard time understanding truth or understanding, well, this is is definitively contrary to God's will. We have a difficult time understanding that. Right at Oxford, the word of the year last year was post-truth. We've all read a lot about alternative facts and fake news, right, over the last several months, right? So we understand that this is the air that we breathe, and so it makes it difficult for us to understand how could judgment be rendered on something? Well, what's the, really the standard for judgment, right? That's why this can be hard for us. But here, here's something that can help us. Right? I think God has standards and God has truths, and we need to, we need to uh, uh, trust them and abide by them, but understand it's difficult. But he, here's, here's what can help us. I want you to just imagine this for me. Imagine this um, in your minds. Imagine you have a, a tape recorder that, that maybe you hang around your neck, or if you don't know what a tape recorder is because you're so young, you have a video camera crew that follows you around for three weeks. Just imagine that. You have three weeks, people following you around. They record everything you say. They see everything you do. Now, before they do that, they sit you down for a one-on-one -on -one interview. They put it on, uh, on CBS 60 Minutes, air it to the whole country, and they say, hey, you tell me what your standard of living, your values, what you believe in, what you think is wrong and right, you tell me what it is. You tell me what you abide by, what you live by, what you hold yourself to. Don't worry, we're not going to say it's right or wrong. You just, you just explain it. We're going to write it down and record it. So you do that and it's eloquent, and it's lovely, and it's beautiful. And, and you do that, and so they have that. They have that on record. They got it written down. Someone uh, 
embroiders it. They, they just, they have it, okay? They got it, and it's sealed. And so what they're going to do is they're going to give you three weeks. They'll record everything you do, and at the end of three weeks, they're going to go and see. That's my son. He's okay. He's very strong. What they're going to do at the end of three weeks is they're going to come back. They're going to review the footage. they got a panel of analysts. They're going to review the footage, and they're not going to judge you by the Ten Commandments. They're not going to judge you by the golden rule. They're not going to judge you by what Jesus will judge you by. They're not going to do any of that. You know what they're going to judge you by? They're going to judge you by your own expressed standard of living and values. Now imagine that. How well would you do? How well would you do living up to your own values and standards? We know, we know, if we're going to be honest, we know that there is going to be some serious failures. And that's human. That's okay. But if you struggle to abide by or believe in that God has a standard of truth and that you miss the mark, I, I can see how that's hard. But just start with your own standard of truth. If you cannot live up to your own standard of values and truth, then wouldn't it not make sense that if there is a God who is more perfect than us, that wouldn't it make sense that if you can't live up to yours, you cannot live up to his either? So I understand this is difficult to, for us to grasp sometimes, but let's start here because that can help us to get there. It helps us to see how that makes sense. It helps us to see why God is actually good for judging Egypt for the atrocities that they've committed. And why God is gracious for providing a way of forgiveness and mercy to go to many. Because God is a just God, but also a gracious Savior. He's a gracious Savior because a mixed multitude will leave Egypt. The final verdict on Egypt is not judgment. If we were to flip to Isaiah 19, we would read at the back half of that chapter uh, several oracles that God is proclaiming about nations that have done very evil things and that God has judged throughout, uh, throughout redemptive history. But do you know what Isaiah's oracle says? It describes Egypt, and God says about Egypt, you will be my people. And so even the just judgment that God brings here is not the final word on Egypt. 1238, a mixed multitude is going to leave Israel. They're going to be Egyptians and Israelites side by side, leaving and fleeing, which is why we're going to see so many laws and commands because people are going to say, yo, I just saw the frogs and the boils and I, uh, tell me about this God because I'm not quite sure what I got into. Break it down for me. We are going to see God is actually going to bring salvation to the nations through this act of judgment and mercy because that's what God does in his holiness, and his character. He's a gracious savior as well as a just judge. That's what the story of the lamb declares. I want you to only give you one more picture to, to, to see this. Uh, imagine at this Passover meal, uh, imagine the family sitting around the table, sitting around the lamb, eating it with their bitter herbs, eating the unleavened bread, this feast, this celebrating, this remembrance, this, this kind of trembling and this awe that's upon them knowing that judgment's going to pass over the land and it's going to pass over them. And they sit there and eat and imagine the oldest son sitting there and looking at that lamb and understanding that what I deserve is to be dead. But here, because of this lamb, I live. Imagine the whole household seeing I deserve judgment just like Egypt. But because God has provided this lamb, I live. You see why Israel responds, bowing in worship. What, what can you say? You know those times where you've been caught red-handed? 
and someone lets you go or they say, I forgive you, or they say, I'm going to pay it back, and just for a moment, you're just kind of speechless. You just kind of, you know, just go, thank you, right? You just, you just don't, <laughs> you don't have the words to, to get it out. Imagine the awe and the wonder that is coming upon the people of Egypt. See, I don't want you to miss this. I don't, see, because if you miss this text or if you, if you miss the fact that God is a just judge, you will miss that he's a gracious savior. If you miss this text, if you don't grab hold of this, you know you're going to miss, you're going to miss Jesus himself. You're going to miss Jesus himself. I want you to think about this. When, when these two truths that God is a just judge and a gracious savior, do they not meet perfectly and fully in Jesus Christ? Is this, is this not just the, the trailer that, that helps us to see God's great act of redemption in Exodus that then leads us to see his greater act of redemption in Christ Jesus? See, we, we, we want to we push this away and then we want to celebrate Jesus, but we don't understand that if we see this, we will celebrate Jesus all the more. Think about when Jesus is introduced by John the Baptist, his, his hype man, his, his forerunner, his opening act. And John sees him. John has been doing ministry, preparing people to, to turn from their sins and to turn to God. And, and, and John the Baptist sees Jesus. He's, gonna be, he's ready to be the hype man, the forerunner, the opening act, the first person on the bill. And, and John sees Jesus and John says, behold, the Son of God. No. He says, behold, the second person of the Trinity. No. He says, behold, the Savior of the world. No. All of those are true. That's, that's not what he says. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. Why? Because he is the display, the gift of grace through which justice that we deserve passes us over. He is the Lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world for Egypt for Israel, for the Hebrews, for people from all nations, tribes, and tongues, according to Revelation 5 and 7. He is the lamb that is slain for the sins of the world. Jesus himself understood this clear as day. Jesus celebrated and delighted in the Passover. Jesus understood that the Father is a just judge and a gracious Savior. So Jesus, as the lamb says, I will be willing to lay down my life. No one takes Jesus' life from him. Jesus isn't forced into sacrifice by the Father. The Trinity, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is unified. Jesus describes himself in John 10. He lays his life down and takes it up. So he does this of his own accord, of his own volition. He lays his life down. We see this in Matthew, Matthew's gospel. We see this in Matthew 26 when Jesus institutes communion. Well, do you know what communion is? It is Jesus having a Passover meal with his disciples. This is how central God is a just judge and a gracious Savior is to Jesus, our Savior. Listen to this from Matthew 26. And on the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? They're saying it's Passover. We got to celebrate that our God is a just God, a just judge and a gracious Savior. We got to celebrate this. This is to be commemorated and remembered. We got, we got, to, we got to remember. We got to eat. We got to celebrate. We got to reflect. We got to think on all that God has done for us. Well, Jesus, where are we going to do this? Because guess what? Jesus was homeless. So Jesus has no crib to do this in. So Jesus does something better. He says, hey, go in the city. There's going to be this guy. Tell him, and then I'm going to borrow his house. Okay? That's verse 18. Uh, then 19, the disciples did as Jesus directed, and they prepared the Passover. So they're celebrating Passover. God is a just, just judge and a gracious Savior. Verse 20, when it was evening, Jesus reclined at table with the twelve. 
Now, what they're expecting is that they're going to retell the story. They're going to recount the story. They're going to eat the unleavened bread. They're going to eat the Passover lamb. They're going to eat with the side of the bitter herbs, which is their kale. They're going to do all that stuff, keeping you guys awake. I know it's heavy. I know it's not easy to think about some of these things. Right? So they're going to eat. They're going to have this meal. And they're expecting Jesus to retell the story. They're expecting they're going to have their lamb. They're going to do all this stuff. But, but what does Jesus do instead? They eat. Jesus takes bread. After blessing it, he broke it. He gives it to his disciples. He says, take, eat, this is my body. Gives a cup. And when he's given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Now they're expecting something a little bit different. They're, they're not expecting Jesus to say, hey, this bread is my body. This, this, this drink is, is, is my blood. Take a drink and eat of me. They're expecting the lamb. They're expecting to retell the story. They're expecting all of that. But Jesus says things are actually a little bit different. You could imagine if we use our imagination in a sanctified way, we, we might wonder and think that maybe one of the disciples, maybe Peter or John, because they got a big mouth, maybe they're there and they're saying, hey, where's the lamb? But, but Jesus is the lamb. The, the lamb doesn't need to be on the plate because the lamb is at the table. And he says, the, the bread is my body, and you're going to eat of it just like you would have eaten of the lamb. I am the Passover lamb given for you. This is what Jesus is showing through the Passover. This is what Jesus is declaring, that the grace of God is, is greater than the judgment that we deserve because God is going to give his own son. See, we, have a, we read this story of the Passover, we think God is going to judge and he's going to do it through this representative of the firstborn of Egypt. And, and for the evils that they've done, yeah, I understand the evils, but isn't that harsh? But, but do we not understand the gospel that God himself gives his firstborn for us? That God himself gives his son for us so that salvation will one day come to Egypt. That salvation will come to you, that it will go to the nations, that one day in the new heavens and new earth, there will be represented every tribe, nation, and tongue, and they will be praising and saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain. See, this is the glory of Jesus Christ. This is the truth of Scripture. This is the story of the lamb. This is what Christ has done for us. This is what the Father has purposed for us. This is what the Spirit makes real and alive to our hearts when we see and we say, God, help me believe. Guys, this is, this is why we just bow and worship like Israel. This is the wonder of the story of the Lamb. But even, even PBS gets this, you guys. Even PBS knows this. PBS says, right, we'll see, let's all this this week. PBS says, Christianity is the only faith that has at its center the degradation and suffering of its God. Christianity is the only faith that has at its center the degradation and suffering of its God. See, so we say, God, oh, how could God judge? God took judgment upon himself for us. So we bow and we worship. What can we do? But thank him and praise him. So what is stopping you from celebrating and believing in the story of the Lamb? Christ given for you. Through faith in Christ, through what he has done on the cross, the judgment that you deserve, because you don't even live up to your own standard, that judgment passes you over.
put on Christ. He takes it willingly for you. What is stopping you from trusting in that story, from believing in that story, for celebrating that story? I want to give you three, three quick things from this text. Maybe I'll only do one. We'll see. Look at verses 1 and 2. God is going to tell them something about their calendar. He's going to say, You're going to, this is going to be the first of the month for you. What God is essentially saying, this is going to be so central to your life and to your story that you, your whole year is going to anchor around the Passover. What, what does that help us understand? That helps us understand God wants us to center our story, center our lives, center the way we think of ourselves, the way we think of Him, the way we think of the world. We center it on the reality that God is both a just judge and a gracious Savior. We center our life on the story of the Lamb. Right? So, so what are, what, why are you here? What is the purpose of your life? Well, you center your life, your purpose in the story of the Lamb and the work that Jesus has done for you and that he's doing in the world, that God is renewing the world, making a people to be his through Jesus, the Lamb that was slain and risen. Connect your story, connect your purpose, connect your everything under the banner of the story of the Lamb and the great grace that God has given to you and to the nations. Connect your story there. Center your life there. 1214, he says, this is going to be a memorial day to you. You're going to remember this. You're going to have this week, this, this feast of unleavened bread. Here's the second thing that we do. We celebrate and remember the story. I want to, encur- I want to encourage you to take regular time to, to cut back on the screen, cut back on the media, cut back on the blank, right? So, find things, but take, take some time. Do you ever take time to just sit and think on the story? To just sit and, and think without a device near you, on what God is doing in the world and what God has done through Jesus. Just sit and think on the love of God for you displayed through Jesus Christ the Lamb. We just celebrate and remember the story. We're going to we take communion. That's a way to remember the story. We, we heard Jesus' words. This is a Passover. This is, this is his, his reinstitution of the, of the Passover. So, so we reflect and we remember the story. And then in 26 and 27, God tells uh, Moses, through God, to, uh, God through Moses, tells the, the elders to, to tell this story to your kids. Because basically, uh, 26 and 27 say, hey, when your kids say, what is going on? God says, hey, t- tell them, remind them that God is a just judge and a gracious Savior, bringing blessing and salvation to the nations. So, so what that means for us is we have the opportunity to retell the story to one another. Because we need to be reminded, how often do you feel purposeless? How often do you feel disconnected from the presence of God, from the purpose of God, from the love of God? You feel unanchored, like life is meandering towards kind of just nothing. Well, it's going towards an end. We, we just need to be reminded of the story. We get to remind one another of the story of the Lamb and what Christ is doing. And then the way we respond is we remember the story, we, we trust in what Christ has done, and, and we, we bow and we worship. We bow and we worship. We thank God that he's a just judge, that, that evil will not go unpunished. We celebrate that. But we also thank him that in his grace, that judgment and justice... It doesn't have to fall upon us, that he provides a means of mercy. Though we don't deserve it, he provides it generously by taking it upon himself in his son. So we bow and we worship. Right now, I want us to also have a time to respond in, in communion. Again, this is, a, this is really probably the best way to respond to this text. We see how, how through Matthew, Jesus takes this Passover and, and, and portrays it in connection to the giving of his body in our place. 
And so as we go and take communion, this is open to, to anyone here who has trusted Jesus as their Savior, as their Lord. And as we sing, I want to encourage you, uh, we're going we're to take a moment of silent prayer, but as we stand and sing in response to God's Word, at any point as we're singing to you, you're free to go to the back and receive communion. It's a, it's a display of the gospel. We heard Jesus' words that this is, his, this is his body represented in the bread broken for us. This is his blood represented in the, in the juice. This is, this is representing what he has done on the cross in our place to restore us to God. The love of Christ symbolized and represented in what he has given for us himself. So let's take a moment to pray silently. As we, as we do that, I want to encourage you, if you're planning to take communion, to just reflect on the state of your heart. Just come before God, and and if there's things you need to confess, confess them, and come before him before we head to the table and sing a response. So let's take a moment to pray silently before the Lord. God, we come before you, and uh, we confess that we we minimize um, your justice and and your holiness, um, Lord, and and we we minimize it for a number of reasons, but uh, we minimize it knowing that if we were to to really think on it clearly, we would, we would, uh, be shaken because we, we recognize that uh, that we couldn't stand before before you. Uh, we know that we fail even to our own standard, and so we know that we, uh, as your word says, we, we certainly fall short uh, of of your glory and, and of the standard that you call uh, call your creation to. And so, God, we we readily confess that and admit that that both by nature and by choice, Lord, we we have sinned and we have turned from you. But God, we, we praise you that in your great mercy and grace, you have not let that be the last word on your creation. You have not let that be the last word upon humanity. But that you have unfolded a, a beautiful plan of redemption that displays both justice and grace. And that your grace is, is rich and lavish and, and endless. We pray, Lord, as we go uh, to the table to receive communion, Lord, that, that you would help us to sense and to know the, the work that Jesus has done for us as, as the lamb that was slain and the lamb that is risen. We ask that you would help us to be shaped by the story, that we would understand the story of the lamb, the work of redemption that you, Father, have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that your spirit would make that truth and that story deep and real to our minds and our hearts. As we sing in response, Lord, would you lead us? And as we declare these words, Lord, would you would you allow them to shape our minds and shape our thinkings, that our, that our minds and our hearts would be renewed and that we would sense the purpose and the story that you've placed us in. We pray this in your son's perfect name. Amen.